question of the morning is this. Are you a quicker forgiver? That's the last question in our series uh, that we set out to do this summer called Diagnosis. This series was based on a book written by Donald Whitney, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. Right? That's really what it was intending to do, is give each and every one of us an opportunity to evaluate and to consider uh, where we are in relationship to Jesus. And so here we are, the last question, although we do have a bonus question next week, uh, which will remain uh, a surprise. Bonus question coming next week. Really, this is the last one of the book, and it's this. Are you a quicker forgiver? This question connects our spiritual health, our walk with Christ, to how we respond to offenses. It connects health to how we respond and deal with sin that is committed against us. So the question really is this, the deeper one, is how do we respond and relate to sin when it is committed against us? How do we respond to hurt and offense? Well, I know what my tendency is. Right? In my own strength, my tendency is to respond to sin with sin. And I wonder if uh, you would agree with me in saying that often when we observe other people in their relationships, that that's exactly what we see. As we're counseling a friend, or, uh, uh, or interacting with a neighbor, or observing something going on around us, we see sin happen, and then sin happen in response to it. And then again, the cycle continues, and things go uh, absolutely crazy in terms of conflict. We respond to sin naturally with more sin. So what happens is someone offends us and there's a spark and that moment of, of conflict and sin sparks within us an emotion that is, is, can be anger. Some of those emotions can be holy anger, but oftentimes it is an unholy anger. And as that anger begins to burn, bitterness begins to take root. And that bitterness, when anger continues to grow and that bitterness takes root, it's bitterness that really begins to consume us like a fire. Am I right? That's what happens. That's what happens to us. And I got to be honest, I was just thinking about the room this morning as I'm looking out at you all, and I'm thinking about maybe some folks as well that aren't even here today, that this can be so easy to talk about forgiveness uh, and, 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 and just from a theoretical angle. It can be so easy to just touch on these things conceptually. Right? One plus one equals two, just nuts and bolts. This is what God does. This is what we do. End of story. But the reality is this. As I began to per, just, just kind of look across in my mind the room, the, that, that there are very real situations. There is very real pain that has come in your hearts, in your lives, as a result of people 
sinning against you. Right? That relationships have been uh, severed and broken. And that there has been very real consequences that have taken place from real words that have been spoken, spoken to you. And real actions that have really driven a wedge inside of you. And I don't know what's going on now. But I think it would be fair to say that they're in this room right now. There are current situations where bitterness is just blazing. And there are current, uh, maybe recent situations where pain and, and sorrow and grief and just, just hurt has been blazing in your soul. And maybe some of us are looking back into the past of something that still just gnaws at us. And still creates a great amount of angst. Strips us of the joy that we know we can and should have in Christ. I, I was going through a Rolodex of conversations about certain situations, very specific in your life. And so we come to this question, are you a quicker forgiver? We don't come to it with just theory and concept. We come to it with a sense of reality that people are experiencing very real pain at the, as the result of very real sins committed against them. And so it is my hope today that as we dig into the Bible, God's Word that speaks to us, that this would not just be something up here that occurs. Oh, now I know what I should do and why I should do it. But literally that the Spirit of God would come in this place and bring about very real healing in your heart today. Very real application of His mercy and His grace in kindness toward you in Jesus Christ. Maybe from a, just an ultimate sense that you've never even heard about a grace that is given and available to you because of Christ. Maybe this whole idea of being set free and forgiven is so foreign to you in relationship to God. I pray that you would experience great healing from mercy today. And maybe it's something, some relationship that just is severed and needs life again. Pray that the Lord would motivate you today. Inspire you. Really. Actually. Experientially. I believe that's why this word is given to us today. Not for knowledge, for knowledge. Amen? Matthew 18, guys. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. It was supposed to be a short introduction. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Listen to what the Word of God says. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. You understand the distinction between a quantitative question and a qualitative question. You tracking with me? It's getting real intellectual this morning. The difference between a quantitative question and a qualitative question. A quantitative question is this, and parents, you hear this a lot. Dad, can I have $10? Right? Quantitative. Can I have $10? A qualitative question is this. One of my children always asks me this question. I find it to be interesting. Dad, are we rich? Right? Quantitative. Can I have $10? I hear that a lot. Thought I might get an amen from the dads on that one. Yeah. The other one is, Dad, are we rich? And then I have to go into this explanation. Well, yes, we are one of the 2% two, richest people in the world because we make more than $30,000. Got to do the global thing, right? All right? So, yes, we're rich, uh, but maybe not in the sense that you're asking it, um, but a qualitative question. Peter comes to Jesus. He asks a quantitative question, Right? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And being the smart man that Peter is, he's answering his own question, and he's kind of stepping up the righteous game a little bit, right? He says, uh, what, seven times, Jesus? What do you think of that righteousness, huh? How many times? Seven times? Jesus, hearing the question, gives him a clear answer, I think, gives him a quantitative answer. What does he say? I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
77 times. Wow, that's a lot more than uh, seven, but at least we have clarity, right? We're supposed to give our brother that sins against us 77 times. What do you think? Pretty cut and dry, pretty black and white. That's easy, 77 times. Hey, at 78, that's it. Ah, 78. Jesus said 77. Sorry, don't got to forgive you anymore. Please understand this. He gives him a quantitative answer, but don't miss what he's saying here. It's hyperbole. It's in essence him saying endlessly. It's endless. There's no limit. The expectation shocks us that it's not 77 literally, but it's endlessly Jesus' expectation on his disciples in terms of forgiveness. When he says that, he's saying always, every single time. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is no conceivable limit to the number of times we're to forgive our brother who sins against us. And again, that's hard for us to hear. Can we just admit that? Because of how real and how painful sin is. Even the thought of once seems shocking based on our sense of justice and our desire for payment. But to say 77, that seems nuts, 77. But then when you really get at what Jesus is saying, you're, he's giving a very clear expectation. And that's difficult for us to hear. But it is his answer. Not seven times, but 77 times. What I mean by that is always unending forgiveness for sin that is committed against you. And so Jesus' expectation on us is that we forgive others endlessly, without limit. But such a statement like that requires basis, doesn't it? Such a statement like that from Jesus requires motive. It needs inspiration. It needs foundation. Because such a calling is absolutely ludicrous to our mind without basis. You cannot just say that, given the pain, given the hurt, without a basis for it. And so Jesus provides that in the form of a parable. Verses 23 all the way down to verse 34, Jesus tells a parable. It's a parable of the unforgiving servant, as it's called. This parable is set for us in three different scenes. The first scene, it describes a king that wants to settle accounts. It's payday. I think in some of my real estate things, it's like I have this very low payment uh, for my house that I bought. You know why? Because I did a balloon structure. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Someday, someone's going to be like, hey, bro. You owe me like 75 grand today, right? Not over 30 years. You owe me money today. It's payday. A king wants to settle accounts. And he has this servant that owes him 10,000 talents. 
Now, let's be careful. When you hear the words 10,000 talents, we don't hear 10,000 U.S. dollars, okay? 10,000 U.S. dollars. You hear 10,000 talents. How do we quantify that amount? Well, let's break it down just a little bit, okay? 10,000 talents. One talent is 6,000 drachmas. Now, do you get it? Well, jeepers, guys. 6,000 drachmas. Okay, okay, let's break it down this way. Okay, one drachma is one day's wage. So, 10,000 talents, one talent is 6,000 drachmas, one drachma is one day's wage. Roll it back up, 60 million days wages, 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. That's how much he owed the king. Balloon payments due. This mount is simply enormous. It's insurmountable. Even a Powerball jackpot victory, nothing. And so he goes and he pleads for mercy. He says, have patience with me. Give me time. And I'll pay you back. And then we see a shocking response. The text says that out of pity, the king forgives him the debt and releases him. Did you hear that? Out of pity for him, the king releases the debt. Payment didn't have to be made. Sort of. Not really. What happened there? It's not like the 10,000 talents just disappears. Who paid? The king paid. The king, out of pity for the servant that had an insurmountable, unpayable debt, looked at him and said, I'll pay for you. This is on me. You're forgiven. You're free. Transformed life of the servant. Forgiven and released. What a change. Do you imagine the weight lifted off? This new free man goes out, and we see the second scene that takes place, that now the servant wants to settle accounts with one of his fellow servants. What do we see happens? He goes out after receiving this mercy and forgiveness. He, we're appalled by what we see the servant do in relationship to a fellow servant. The passage says that he found a fellow servant that owed him some dough. You know how much it was? One hundred didn't, no, that's not right. Is that right? 100 denarii. Okay, so my notes are good. 100 denarii. That's a lot, right? Do you know? Let me help you out. One denarii, 100 denarii is 100 days wages. Minimum wage is going up. 12 G's. 12 G's, 60 million days wages, 12 G's. Anybody want 12 G's? Raise your hand. <laughs> Guys, I want 12 G's. Anybody want 12 G's? Come on, work with me here. Be honest. If you don't want 12 G's, you got issues. Okay? $12,000, it's still a significant amount of money, Right? 
It's not 60 million days wages. So what does he do? The guy who owes him the 12,000 comes up, he begs for mercy. Have mercy on me. I'll pay you back. And what does the servant do? He refuses. He refuses. Having just received mercy, he refuses to do it. In comparison to what had been forgiven, the monumental, the, the massive debt, this seemingly minor, minimal debt, he refuses to forgive. And so we come to the third scene where the king finds out. And he's summoned back to the king. And we see this question in verse 33 that I think should drive, in many ways, our thinking and application about this whole passage. He says, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And we see that because he did this, he showed his wickedness and his refusal to give that which he received. And in, uh, uh, just insignificant in terms, of compare, uh, com- in terms of comparing it, in terms of the debt, he was sadly now forfeiting his forgiven state until he would pay. Really, he lost his life. Lost everything. Because he would never repay that amount of debt. What a story here that is given by Jesus to illustrate some spiritual truths that are very applicable to us here. Some things to illustrate and, and, and teach and reveal uh, the nature uh, of God. First of all, though, I think that what we see in this parable is that Jesus is illustrating the nature and effect of our sin. We can't really understand the parable without uh, uh, seeing this. That in relationship of the servant to the king, we see the nature and the effect of our sin, right? That our sin is this enormous debt that we have and that we owe to God. A debt that we cannot pay back. We don't have the merit. We don't have the money. We don't have the works. We don't have the righteousness. We don't have any of that that would be sufficient ever. It's, we don't have it. We're bankrupt. We're broke. And yet because of our sin and our rebellion with God, we now live indebted to God and His holiness. And that sin requires full payment to be made. And because we cannot pay for our sin, that sin costs us our life. And in that place, we see that sin is an enslaving reality, an imprisoning reality that we can't get out of. It's no small thing is what I'm saying. Sin is our predicament, our standing before God, our unrighteousness before this holy God. That is our primary problem. Really, the totality of all human issues is all traced back to and because of our sins. And it is a debt that we owe. We're enslaved in it. 
But we see in this king, this forgiveness that God provides. This merciful response that he gives to us. He self uh, he. He self-assumes the debt. That's what God does for us when he forgives us in Christ. He doesn't just say no problem to our sin. It doesn't just go away magically. He doesn't shove it under a rug and ignore it. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our debt in our sin. No. When God forgives us, he assumes the cost on himself. You say, how does he do that? He does so and has done so in Jesus Christ. The one who came, lived a perfect, sinless life, and who went obediently to a cross, who died as a substitute for your sins. And so in that moment on the cross... He assumed the debt. He fully and sufficiently paid all of it for all of the people of God. He assumed the cost. And so it's paid. We sing Jesus paid it all. It is a beautiful truth. Because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. And what we see here in the action of the king is the very action, is, a, is an action that illustrates the very action of God to assume on himself the full cost and weight of all of our sins, sins that we never could have paid on our own, except for death in judgment. But now we see the gospel, the grace, the mercy. That as sinners come to him begging, pleading with him, on our knees before him, trusting solely in his mercy found in Jesus Christ, that he gladly and sacrificially assumes the cost and provides for us the pardon and the freedom that we need and long for. That is the gospel. And I pray that if we miss everything else today, please don't miss that. That the foundation of all forgiveness in us is an action of God in Christ, a mercy of God given in Christ to pay for and uh, be a substitute for our sins. That is the good news. What a wonderful thing it is. And so forgiveness sets us free to live debt-free. Because of Jesus Christ. It's all because of Jesus. Without the atonement, without the sacrifice, without the blood, without the death, we have no hope to speak of these things. But here in this church, we preach Jesus Christ in Him crucified. That is central to our understanding of the gospel. We want you to hear it and see it and love it and revel in it and think about it and apply it in every aspect of your lives. Jesus did it. It is finished. It's paid. I'm harping on it 
because it must be harped on. It's not you just going under the couch with works and merit trying to find some change to pay God back. It's Jesus paying it all and setting us free. And so you ask the question, why do we forgive endlessly? Because Jesus, because of Jesus, because of the magnitude of God's forgiving mercy in our lives, the sheer magnitude of it, it's the magnitude of God's mercy, his forgiving mercy toward us, that's what inspires us to forgive others endlessly, that and that alone. And so in this passage, we get the inspiration to forgive. I'll never forget Bruce Bear, and this is late 90s, early 2000s. He's a pastor at Grace Covenant. I'll never forget Bruce Bear uh, hearing the news, the shocking tragedy of his uh, mother being murdered in his home. It's out in Baldensville. Two robbers came in, cooking lunch. No one else was home. Sweet old woman. Just murdered. Cold blood. For a hundred bucks. And in processing all the grief of that, and you can imagine the anger and all the emotions. Months and years go by, and finally he's standing before the man that did this. Bruce Bear says this, looking at the man who killed his mother. We want you to know that when you killed Mary Lily Bear, you took a life that was cherished by her husband, family, and friends. To have her physical life taken by you in such a cruel and unnecessary way has caused great sorrow and pain in the lives of those who loved her so much. We often think of her and miss her. Perhaps part of the good that will come from such a terrible crime is for you to hear what Mary Lily Bear would wanted us to say to you today. And in that courtroom, he said this. We want to tell you that we forgive you. And we can say this with sincerity because we have received God's forgiveness for the wrong things we have done. What a powerful display of bending mercy that was once received vertically. Because of God's mercy toward us for the wrong things we have done. We're not going to minimize those things. We're not going to pretend it's not as bad because of the great, the magnitude of the mercy of God that I have received for the things that I have done. We can say with sincerity, we forgive you. What an awesome thing. That's the motive. Right, We think about the, the minuscule nature of other people's sins against us compared to our sin against God. And why can we say that? Why can we say that, the, that, that fellow servants' debts toward us are, 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 are minuscule compared to the debt that we owe God because of the dignity of the one that's been sinned against? It's not the same. It feels like it. But the debt that we owe God is so much magnitude because of the worth and the dignity of who He is. 
So as we humbly understand that, we can hear the words of Colossians and understand its basis. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ken Sandy goes on to say this in his wonderful book, The Peacemaker. If you haven't read it, grab it, read it. I actually read that one. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, they're the most forgiving people in the world. Mercy in, mercy out. Mercy poured in, overflows into the lives of others. And yet we humbly recognize, we humbly admit that we hear this, and yet it's still hard, isn't it? There's a connection that we understand, but not necessarily a connection here. There's still a roadblock for many of us. For many of us, you'll stand here and testify to the fact that God has walked you through pain. And he's given you the ability to forgive and to uh, reconcile with people. That you have indeed received and you have indeed given and continue to do so. But for some of us, we still sit here with very real pain, hurt, and sorrow and such a difficulty to obey these commands. We know we should, but sometimes we feel as though we just can't. Am I right? I was talking to a follower of Jesus recently about their walk. We're talking about something that I won't get into, but basically the idea was this, is that I know what I'm supposed to do. And I, and I set a course, I'm going to do that. If that situation presents itself, this is what I'm going to do, all glory to God. But when that situation presents itself, I fell. It's like I don't know how to do it. I know what to do, but I don't have the strength to do it when the situation presents itself. Can some of you identify with that? I told, you know what I said to that person? Let me, let me illustrate in my life. I pray, Lord, give me peace of mind. I'm not going to worry. Right? A situ- everything's good. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, woo! I go outside and I'm like, man, today's going to suck. You know, like... It's just, it's just what I do, man. I'm like, Lord, what? I set out to be a man of peace and, and to just be calm and take one thing at a time. It's like the minute someone's like, boom, 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 it's like, we're all going to die. You ever feel that way, right? So that's the idea. Yeah, there are things in our lives we get conceptually, but it doesn't always translate experientially. For many of us, it's this. Forgiveness. We struggle with unforgiveness. We struggle with bitterness. We know, and we even live in the shame that we can't, that we hold on. 
We want it to, to let it go, but it just like enslaves us. And this bitterness that we know is like a flame that's burning inside of our hearts. And so we wonder, how do we put out the flame? How do we put out the fire of bitterness that blazes in our hearts? Well, understand this. I only have one true answer for you. And then one that is just a sidebar. One true answer. And there's nowhere else to go, okay? It's the one source. To deal with bitterness, to deal with unforgiveness. You gotta drink from the well. You, to put out a fire, you need water. All right, if the fire rages in you, 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 you need water. The only place to go for motivation, for inspiration, for appropriating grace is to the source of grace. That's the only place to go. There's only one source. You can only go to God. You can only go to the gospel. You can only go to Jesus. You can only stare at the cross. You can only read the word of God. You can only pray. There's nowhere else to go but God for what you can only get from God. You got to go to the well. You see, the problem with us is that we try so hard in our own human effort to just let it go. It's no big deal, right? To turn a blind eye, to ignore that person, but somehow those images just keep coming back. Those words just keep coming back, right? No big deal on our own strength. But you know what? Every time we do that in relationships, we're doing this. We're just blowing on the fire. You know what happens with human effort on the fire of bitterness? Just blazes all the more. Human effort, shoving it under the rug, it's going to rear its ugly head again. You got to bring it to the source. You got to go to the source because to put out a fire, you need water. And I'm here to tell you good news that God is the well. Christ is the well. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, all that he's accomplished in his substituting death is the well. So you got to go there, meditate on it, think about it, preach it to yourself, memorize scriptures. You just got to go there. And every time you go, you just keep drinking. You just keep drinking. You just keep drinking from the well, the gospel. Lord, put, it's not in me. I need you in me more. More. And that, that's really a never-ending thing. I mean, we have all that we need. The Spirit of God is in us. Amen? We can't get more of God in one sense. But understand this. As, as, as fully dependent creatures made in His image, we're fully are always dependent. We always need to drink. And we stop drinking. I'm telling you. You stop drinking from the gospel, bitterness is going to creep. It's going to come back. Those old things, it's just the flames going to come, but you just got to keep drinking every day. Every time that thought crosses your mind, every time you run into that person, just drink it. The gospel, Jesus forgave me. The magnitude of the forgiving mercy of God in my life, that's the well. You just keep drinking. If you don't go to the well, you will not find grace. I love this quote from Ray Ortland. He says, the remedy... For our deadness to God's grace. I mean, isn't that really what the wicked servant was? Dead to grace. Mercy bounced. It never made it into his heart. 
right? He lost the debt, but it never, when, when God forgives us, he doesn't just do something for us, he does something to us, and he does something in us. The heart. And sometimes we grow, we grow numb and dead to God's grace. Well, man, if I'm numb and dead to God's grace, what do I do? Drink grace. Love that. The remedy for our deadness to God's grace is more grace. I need more grace. Got to go to the well. Got to go to the well. I'm telling you right now, the warning is out. If you keep trying in your own strength, if you keep avoiding if you keep trying to forget, trying to fill your mind with other things, <sighs> got to go to the well. Number two is sidebar, not as important. It's just something I've observed. It's something that's helped me forgive in my life. Number two is beware of emotionalizing forgiveness. I think at the end of the day, we're just looking for, to feel better. That's all we want. Again, in the end, I think God wants us to be full of joy. It's not a joyless thing, forgiveness. But I think when we think about if I've forgiven them, we're at really asking, do I feel better about this situation? Do you understand? Uh, I don't think I've forgiven them. Do I feel better about the situation? I think that's, that's a trap. Okay? Forgiveness is not primarily a feeling. When you look at what it's based on, can't be a feeling of God. Yes, his mercy, that's more his nature. It's his nature, it's who he is. He expresses that nature in decisions and actions. And I think that that's what forgiveness really is. It's a decision based on an action. That might help some of you. It's helped me. I may not feel better. I may not want to, you know, hang out right away. The consequences to things people do. In asking the question, are you a quicker forgiver, what we're asking is, are you ready? Are you prepared to forgive? Right? And I think the person who is, who is a, staring at an action of God in Christ, drinking, can now make a decision about other people's sins against them based on that decision. I think that's what forgiveness is. And if you look at the, look at the parable, what happened? When he forgave, he what? He said, you no longer require payment from me. Maybe forgiveness is that. You're looking at somebody's sin against you. You want them to pay for this. And forgiveness is a decision that you make based on an action of God to say, payment made in full. You don't owe me anything. I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. You know why? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid. Wait, they don't have to pay for what they did because Jesus paid for what I did and Jesus paid for what they did. Payment's been made. Don't emotionalize it. And understand this, if you, um, if you want more payment from someone you are, in essence, saying Christ's death is not enough. Just, just are. Don't emotionalize that. Just let that sit in. If you say, you owe me, you're saying, Jesus paid, 
and you got to pay too. You're really calling into question the sufficiency of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. But Jesus is sufficient. And his, the magnitude of his mercy toward us is what inspires us to forgive others endlessly. He ends verse 35 by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Ah, dang it. Forgiveness, no longer a quantitative issue. Jesus did it again. It's not just every time, 77. Really, this is what the Father does to those who do not forgive what? From their heart. Forgiveness is a um, qualitative issue. This is an issue of our heart. Right? Mercy in, mercy out. Mercy in, don't, feeling weak, feeling empty, mercy in, mercy in. And we see here that the, Jesus is giving us a warning. He's giving us a warning. But I think Ligon Duncan's quote is helpful. He says, Jesus' point is not that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. Please hear that. Jesus' point is not that we merit God's forgiving us by forgiving other people. Jesus' point is this. When you have received in your heart the grace of God, and you've been forgiven of your sins, justified by grace, it cannot help but transform your heart to be merciful to others who have offended you. Readiness to forgive is a sign of health in the heart. Mercy in, mercy out. The magnitude of God's forgiving mercy toward you is the motive, the inspiration for us to forgive others endlessly. So who is it this morning? Who is it? What situation? What relationship? Where is bitterness blazing in your soul, consuming you? Go to the well and drink. Drink. As much as you need, God has it. Drink. Remember. Receive. And then give. Give it. Share it. Here's a wonderful thing. When you share something you have, it maximizes the joy. Share it. Share it. I pray today that God heals you. Even if it's just the starting of a process, that that's starting. Healing. Restoration. Peace in your heart. Forgiveness from God. Forgiveness with other people. Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful king. 
We have, in our sins, incurred such a debt before you that we cannot pay on our own. And yet all praise and glory be to you that when you heard our weeping, you saw us on our knees, when you heard us come to you by faith in Jesus Christ, it was you who sacrificially assumed our debt, paid it in full, reconciled us back to you, set us free, and gave us life, put a new heart inside of us, filled it and saturated us, it with the mercy that only you can give. And it's a mercy now that motivates and inspires us to look around at real people and deal with real pain and sorrow and just drink from the well in such a way to share it with others. God, I pray that you would just motivate that within us today. Do a work in the hearts of these people. Give them joy and peace that is only found in you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.